Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, SDS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. And tonight, we get to one of the biggest true crime stories America has ever seen. Of course, that is Brian Koberger's uh, quadruple murder case out of Moscow, Idaho. It is heating up now with discussion of the use of investigative genetic genealogy to capture the accused killer. It is something one of our uh, guests tonight has written about. Uh, this, as prosecutors say, they are going to seek the death penalty in the Brian Koberger murder case. We want to remind everyone that Brian Koberger is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. No one knows that better than the two women guests. And speaking of best guests, we've got Tara Malik. She is an Idaho licensed attorney practicing in state and federal court in business and commercial litigation. She has experience in both civil and criminal law and has one of the best ivy grass backgrounds you will ever see. <laughs> Jean Fisher, the woman who looks like she's coming from a nice, warm Idaho porch. Uh, that is one of the, pro the, the, the goats of all prosecutors. After nearly 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office, uh, she was head of the Special Crimes Unit during law school. Uh, Jean interned at the Prosecutor's Office before being hired directly out of law school back in 1989. And by 97, as I said, she became the supervisor of the sexual assault unit and is focused on those cases ever since. And she knows uh, the inside of uh, the courtroom better than just about anyone. Last but certainly not least, we've got Kevin Fixler. He's an investigative reporter with the Idaho Statesman. He had a story drop just late this afternoon. Make sure you are supporting local journalism, especially the Idaho Statesman. He was just named Reporter of the Year in Idaho, in large part because of his incomparable work on the Moscow murders. He's been following the story and uh, even traveled out to Pennsylvania uh, to try to interview family and friends. And uh, he will provide us with some of the latest details in the case. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Insta, uh, all those places we are at Surviving the Survivor, except Twitter. Twitter we are at Podcast STS. You can also listen to us successfully now anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can support us on Patreon and support us uh, as a YouTube member. And the merch store is open for business. As you all know, uh, every time we do this story, I like to start uh, with the victims. Uh, so let us never forget those young lives lost way too so soon. We've got Madison Mogan, 21, Kaylee Gonzalez, 21, Ethan Chapin, 20 and uh, Zana Kernodal, uh, 20 as well. Um, fix the fix, Kevin Fixler, the investigative reporter with the Idaho Statesman. Um, what's what's the very latest? Uh, I know you had a story out today, it has to do with uh, the house at 1122 uh, King Road. Uh, and I'm going to get to Gene and Tara on this, but what is the very latest uh, with, the, with the house there? So last week we learned that the university had intentions of finally demolishing the house. Uh, there was talk uh, that that would happen before the end of the spring semester. The former owner of the property actually donated it to the university. And so they're pursuing plans to uh, tear that down. 
it was delayed for kind of unknown reasons. It sounds like it was some staffing issues and so forth. But uh, today, and I guess from over the weekend, we learned that uh, some of the families are actually opposed to the demolishing of that property before the trial. And uh, Shannon Gray, who represents the Gonsalves family and also represents uh, some members of the Mogan family in a tort claim, so potential civil litigation down the road, um, he, he has said that two or three of the families or members of them do oppose uh, bringing the property down, citing kind of evidentiary concerns uh, for the trial. And once it's gone, it's gone. So they have formally requested that the university hold off on that plan, which would happen um, from what the university is saying before students return in the fall. And that would be August 21st would be sort of the deadline for that. So about seven weeks from now, sometime within that period, it would come down. And uh, we're, we're kind of seeing some behind the scenes uh, happening between the families and the university. And uh, right now it looks like the university is proceeding with pulling some remaining items from the property, getting those to family, and then uh, at some point demolishing it before, as I said, students return this fall. And so you answered my next question, which is when, and it sounds like it's got to be done before August 21st. Um, I just had Scott Roeder on the show last night to discuss uh, aliens. He is a crime scene reconstructionist. Uh, I've had him on before to discuss this. He says it is a horrific idea to tear that down. Um, and we'll get Gene's take in just a moment. Cynthia Keith, dear God, he is creepy. She's not talking about you, Fix. She's talking about Koberger because it popped up right when you uh, started. His- <laughs> Raul- Thanks, Cynthia. <laughs> Raul Thomas says Brian looks older than 28. Maybe. Uh, someone else says he looks looks like a 40-year-old insurance agent. But uh, regardless of what he looks like, uh, he's in a, in a heap of trouble right now. Um Regarding this home, uh, 1122 King Road, um, a University of Idaho spokesperson came out and said, we are currently working on removing all the personal items from the house so the families can claim them as they choose. Then we plan to move forward with demolition. Uh, Gene Fisher, um, you have, uh, you know, tried many cases. Uh, What what? are they thinking here? Uh, do you believe this house should be uh, taken down before the trial scheduled for October 2nd, especially uh, because jurors may want to see what it looks like, the proximity, you know, to the road, the proximity to the roads he was traveling on. What kind of idea is this to demolish this home? <clears throat> well, I think it's a terrible idea. Um, I'm kind of surprised. I don't know where the Latah County prosecutor is involved in all of this. Um, but from my perspective, <clears throat> I wouldn't want that to happen. I, I know that the prosecutor's office can walk through, they can film, they can take measurements, they can take pictures. There's lots that they can do. Um, and maybe that's what they're relying on. But <clears throat> this case has has some really unique issues um, about Goldberger's, um, where he went that night and how he did it. And it's confusing. Um, and I don't know why you would allow the house to get demolished just in the event that you really may need it or an issue comes up in this type of case. So I, I'm kind of surprised and I don't know where the prosecutor is on this and why they're not weighing in more. And I'm very happy to see Carrie Rawson, who is a friend and uh, she's been on the show before she is tuning in. So shout out to uh, Carrie and hope all is well with you. I'm sure we'll talk after the show. Um, 
the Gonzalez family, uh, through their attorney, came out, uh, Shannon Gray, and made the following uh, statement, Tara, regarding this house. Uh, we have made it very clear, they say, to the University of Idaho that we do not want that house to be demolished, and they are ignoring us completely. When I say ignoring us, I mean that they respond and say, we understand what you're saying, but basically tough cookie. We're going to go ahead, uh, go forward with it because they, they say that it's for the good of the community and good for the University of Idaho. Um, I don't need to tell you, Tara, a lot happened in that home and on different floors. And uh, for someone like myself who's never been there, it is hard to visualize this, even though I've seen animations. Um, in your opinion, from an evidentiary standpoint at trial, how important would it be to keep uh, an option open for jurors to travel potentially to this house to do a walkthrough or at least at the very least see it from the outside? You know, I, I would take a really conservative approach in this case, and I would keep the house as is to leave that option open. I mean, I we certainly had cases um, where the jurors are allowed to go and tour a property and take a look at it. And especially in this particular case where you're dealing with all of this circumstantial evidence and some eyewitness testimony about somebody walking down a hall, I think it's even more critical um, for the jurors to have the ability or the option to see this house in person. I completely agree with Jean. You can do all sorts of things now. You can do animations, you can video the house and have an officer walk through and do a tour of the whole house, but really nothing takes the place of walking through uh, a, a location yourself. So uh, it's a curious decision um, that's being made and uh, not one that I would personally make. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm a nobody, buddy. Even a nobody uh, can have an opinion, and I think it's kind of dumb. But Trilly Fly here, to, uh, Gene, to you, um, prior to BK's arrest being publicized, people are, are sending us questions now. I wonder if roommate DM was shown a six-pack or taken uh, – to police for, I guess, a lineup to make a determination that BK was who she saw in the hallway. Do you think they did some sort of photo array uh, prior to the, you know, this all being made public? I think that's what she was asking, if she was shown photos and had to pick them out of essentially a photo lineup. I, you know, I, it's, I mean, I'm purely conjecture guess here, but I, I don't think that they did. I think that I think that if they had uh, two things, one, if they had and she had picked him out of a photo lineup, that probably would have gone in that affidavit for probable cause that was really extensive. Um, and if they had and she couldn't pick him out, well, then that is material that they would have had to turn over and also say we had a witness looking and she couldn't pick him out. So I, it seems just looking at those two uh, options, I'm, I'm giving you a safe guess that they, that did not happen. Uh, and again, Jean has. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Jean has 33 years experience and in, uh, in Boise uh, courthouse, so she knows. I think, um, Kevin. Um, I, I know you mentioned this, um, but in terms of other family members, the Gonzalez's have been you know vocal about this. But uh, when it comes to the tearing down of this home, were you able to speak to any other families or any other victims? Uh, you know, family members. Yeah, I've, I've reached out to the other three families. Again, Shannon Gray does represent uh, some members of the Mogan family in the potential civil litigation. So you can assume that he is aware of how those members uh, feel about this. I did also reach out to 
member of the Kernodal family and also to the Chapins. Uh, the Chapins are not represented by Shannon Gray. And he actually told me directly he's not sure how they feel about it, but I have not heard back from them and then have not been able to confirm how uh, the Kernodal family feels about this just yet. And Kevin, if my memory serves me correct, the Chapin said publicly they are not going to attend uh, a trial. Is that right? Yeah, I think they're less interested in some of the um, kind of daily minutia of this and are sort of engaged in allowing this process to play out a lot less so than uh, a family like the Gonsalves who have committed really to being at most uh, most any hearing of importance. Okay. Um, again, back to Gene, because this one's specifically for you from I Am Not T-Pain. If you were prosecuting this case against Koberger, what would your prosecution strategy be? What would you say to him? Uh, what would you say to make sure the jury has no reasonable doubt? This is obviously a very, very involved question and an even more involved answer. But uh, can you give us kind of a quick summary of what your you know overall strategy might be here? Well, I mean, based on the on the cases, I understand it. Remember, I don't have all the discovery or all the information either. But as I understand it, you know, you you. The, the biggest piece of evidence that the state has is DNA and that genealogy match. And, and it's really important for the jury to understand how significant DNA is and how reliable DNA is in a case like this. Um, because, because that's, you know, without a direct eyewitness, um, the DNA is, is, is really critical, but there's other things too. I mean, this, this case has, some technical has a lot of technical merit to it with the GPS and the tracking with the phones um, and his movements and some of the, some of that as well. And I think generally people understand that a little bit more. There are a lot, most people are pretty cell phone savvy these days and they understand privacy issues on their own phones. And so I think being able to explain that to a jury, they all understand that a little bit easier than even the, the DNA. And people need to understand and remember that DNA is used all the time now. I mean, we use it for paternity. We use it. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we use DNA for. And um, really getting them to understand the crux of that is important. Um, and otherwise, this case, you know, it proceeds, you know, for me, this case um, proceeds in a, in a pretty chronological order um, with the investigation of the case um, and getting the story told. Um, but I think that the DNA is really critical. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because DNA has kind of become a focal point now. Um, Tara, just a couple of days ago, um, Brian Koberger's defense team and headed by Ann Taylor, uh, they came out and basically tore into the prosecutor's DNA uh, method of collection, uh, specifically their use of genetic uh, genealogy. There's something called IgG, investigative genetic genealogy. Uh, as well as a tracking of uh, the white Elantra that we've all heard about. Um, they are basically saying that, you know, according to court records, that DNA from three other unidentified males was found at the crime scene, including on a glove, and that they haven't been forthcoming with the way all this DNA was collected. Um, what do you think is really going on here? I mean, are they making a legal case? Or are they trying to muddy the waters? I happen to catch a news segment. Um, on an, what will remain an unnamed uh, cable channel. Um, but there were very high level attorneys who said that they were really that what the defense was doing here was just trying to grasp at straws, but also just, again, muddy the waters, confuse everyone. 
Um, any idea what they're really doing here other than that, maybe? Well, I, I don't think that's wrong. Um, so, you know, a good defense attorney is going to look for ways to uh, highlight or create reasonable doubt. And so one of those ways would be to attack, you know, this genealogy. But here's the problem. The problem is at the end of the day, it doesn't explain, even if there are three other, you know, male DNA around this house, what it doesn't explain is it doesn't explain the DNA on the knife sheath that was found under one of the victim's bodies. And so, you know, to me, it's a little bit of a red herring and it's also explainable. I mean, remember, this is a college house. They, you know, there's no um, mystery that there were numerous parties at this house. There was a bunch of people going in and out there. So the fact that there's other male DNA at a college house where there were these types of parties is explainable in my mind. And so it does feel a little bit like the defense may be grasping at straws or, or you know, making uh, a mountain out of a molehill here. But I will say that is there that they have to do that. They have to go and explore all of these avenues as well. Um, you know, and, and there had been a theory previously that perhaps Koberger wasn't the only one who allegedly committed this crime. There was another uh, individual involved as well. So all of those things come into play. And, and Gene, that just reminds me again, um, you know, of what Koberger said when he was arrested. And I don't, for, I don't remember the exact uh, wording, but he basically asked, was anyone else arrested? Something to that effect. Um, I guess I, and, you know, that, that hasn't been verified, but I, I mean, I, I heard the same thing, yeah. but nobody has really been able to verify that that actually, that actually <laughs> happened. I don't, I don't know um, about that part of it, but I, yeah. I agree with Tara, you know, that the defense has to do that. I just, I also think that, you know, I think about what the defense is doing in general right now, and they were convinced that there was an, that they were going to file, file an alibi and, they were arguing for the prosecution that they were giving over all their discovery. And, you know, an alibi defense has to be, um, you have to provide it within 10 days of the prosecutor's request. And they kept asking for a continuance saying they needed to go through the discovery. And that's just, you know, that's just a delay tactic that's, that's real fishy. Um, because either you know, either you know where you were and who you were with or you don't, but you don't get to go through the discovery in order to create an alibi. Um, so, so I, Jean, I how would how would in your day how would you handle something like that you know as uh, someone representing the state? Well, you know, the, so the state, um, you know, they put in their demand for an alibi. Um, the def the defense uh, said that they needed more time and they didn't get enough discovery. Um, and remember, just so that everyone understands, I mean, the alibi defense is is different than just. A defense. I mean, the alibi defense is I I didn't do it. Somebody else did it, and I can tell you where I was, and I have a witness to say where I was. And the reason that they that that, that there's a ten day timeline on that is, you know, most prosecutors are pretty ethical, and we're not real interested in pursuing a case on the wrong on the wrong person. So they have ten days in order to provide an alibi because the idea is that if you provide us with the witnesses and we're going to go send out investigators and find out if what you say is true, if it is true, then we you know we we may not have a reason to, to continue with this prosecution. But he hasn't complied with any of that. The only thing that they have said is we want more time to look at the discovery in order to come up with an alibi, and that just doesn't cut it. So um, you know I think that the prosecution has done what, what they needed to do. They fought that issue in court. 
Um, the judge has ordered them to provide more discovery that the defense says that they have. But the issue of an alibi, I think, uh, at this point is probably new. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kevin, I want to get back to you on uh, the DNAs. I know you spoke to Barbara Ray Venter, who's kind of the godmother of uh, IgG, but uh, IT, uh, I am not, I almost called her ITT. I am not T. Payne says, uh, when this case was first being reported, a journalist interviewed an employee at the smoke shop the victims shopped at. They said Kaylee mentioned having a stalker. Could it be Koberger? Was this ever verified? Do you know, Kevin? I, I know you know a lot of the uh, nuances of this case, but um, is this what she's asking about here about the smoke shop, uh, was this ever reported and, and vetted out as being truth? I recall, I, I forget which network, but somebody did go into a local Moscow uh, smoke shop. I, I believe it was Ethan actually who had been through there. And so let's cleave that off. And so the question about, did Kaylee have a stalker? Uh, her parents had, had appeared on interviews, uh, national networks and said that they had, that she had told them that she felt like she had been followed at certain points and things like that. So much so that Moscow PD, they actually in their sort of rumor control at points were listing online. There was actually a question under the FAQs. Did Kaylee have a stalker? And so this was widely discussed, vetted. Uh, they did. There was an incident where she reported that two men had followed her, I think, out of a, a grocery store. And they actually did some checking on that. And it was something that they were just two guys who were hitting on her or attempting to or something like that. And, and sort of that was the, the end of the whole thing. Mm. Uh, Janet reminding us all, hang on one sec, Gene, uh, that it is the 4th of July tomorrow. And we're actually going to be doing a show about Ellen Greenberg, uh, the young Philadelphia teacher who was stabbed 20 times, uh, 10 of them to the back. Two uh, during an, an independent autopsy show, the two of the stab wounds happened after she was already dead, and it was ruled a suicide. Um, so what's going on in Philadelphia? There's uh, some corruption or ineptness or both at play, and uh, we're going to put some pressure on the Philadelphia mayor because he's got some power to make things happen. I've become friends uh, with Ellen Greenberg's parents. They are suffering. This happened back in 2011 uh, tomorrow night. Uh, check me out at Podcast STS on Twitter, and I'll let you know the showtime. We'll, we'll either do it at 6 p.m. Eastern or 7 p.m. Eastern uh, tomorrow night. Try to do it a little bit earlier if we can so everyone can check out their fireworks. But a shout-out to Janet, shout-out to Ski Hat Sarah, and shout-out to Marina in the south of Spain. Um, I'm sorry, Gene, you were going to mention something. Well, you know, I just think that you know, Kevin's you know, conversation about um, whether she had a stalker, those sorts of things, it's that's also a big um, it can be a very big defense ploy because they want to try and get the state to have to answer a bunch of questions that don't really that they may not be able to answer. Like, you know, who who I mean, they may know who died first, but they they may you just want to make sure in a case like this that you stay focused and know what it is that you have to prove, because there are some there's a lot of questions about this that aren't going to be answered like why did he go into the second bedroom or you know who who was was he stalk was he the stalker or if he wasn't the stalker does that mean there was somebody else you know that was and so it's just real important for the prosecution in this case to keep their eye focused on what it is that they have to prove because there's going to be some questions that the defense is going to try and lob that you just aren't going to be able to answer 
and we're going to weave our way back to the uh, IgG, the DNA issue. But Dom's mom has a question, uh, Tara Malik, for you. Um, have they decided whether the survivor, there's two of them that saw him in the hallway, uh, will have to testify in front of him or if her already given testimony will suffice? I think that was in question. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't know any of the uh, witnesses that are going to be called yet, right, Tara? But uh, what is your yeah. hunch tell you? Um, will uh, the two surviving uh, victims, will, you know, do you think they're going to be subpoenaed in, in the courtroom to be there? Is that almost a, a given that that will happen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the defendant has a right to confront the witnesses against him. And so um, I, I can't imagine a scenario where they wouldn't be called to testify in front of them, even if they've given the prior testimony in front of the grand jury. Uh, so I, I would be shocked. And I don't know, Gene, I've never seen that before where there would be some sort of exception to it. So they're going to have to testify in front of him. You know, um, attorneys all the time will have to deal with these situations when you're prepping your witnesses. I'm sure they'll be given instructions and, you know, talk through how, how to testify when you're nervous and all of those things. So uh, unfortunately, you can't save even a victim of uh, or a witness to a horrific crime like this, you really can't save them from the process of, you know, going through and making sure that there's a full and fair trial on the issues here. And there have been people out there giving both of these surviving roommates some heat, accusing them of things. It's just not right. Um, they've been through so much. And I think it's going to be very brutal uh, what lies ahead for them, because the magnitude of this case, once this goes to trial, I can tell you as a guy that was in television news for 25 plus years, uh, this will be the biggest trial that we've seen, uh, certainly since OJ Simpson. So um, it's there's the heat is going to be on, the pressure is going to be on, and uh, the spotlight will be shining uh, on both of those surviving victims. Um, Kevin, I'm assuming you've reached out to them to try to get comment, probably with no luck. Is that right? Yeah. In the early days, we were attempting to reach them. And then, of course, once the uh, probable cause affidavit came out and revealed some of the information that they had uh, given to police through interviews and so forth. It was pretty clear that as witnesses and even through their attorneys who are bound by the gag order that still exists, um, they, these are just not people who are willing to talk. I will add, by the way, the defense had already subpoenaed one of those witnesses who now lives or is originally from uh, Nevada, and they did reach an agreement earlier. And this was as they were building toward the preliminary hearing, which ultimately didn't happen because of the grand jury indictment. We didn't know that at the time, that that was uh, the other path that was occurring. But uh, they had reached agreement, the defense and that particular witness, uh, for some testimony that was uh, taken, or not testimony, but an interview that was taken in Nevada, so she did not have to come to the courtroom. Mm. Uh, and that's a that's a great point. And I do re recall all of that now that you mention it. Uh, Australia is in the house. Tali is in the house in Israel. This case bothers me. She is studying criminology, Gene. The shift in the public bothers me. The dog bothers me. Uh, that is an interesting point. Uh, the quiet dog uh, in that house. Um, Evan, back to you. So you interviewed and we've had her on the show, Barbara Ray Venter. And you said, man, this is hard to understand. And I'm with you uh, because investigative genetic genealogy. Uh, I am no uh, science whiz. That's why I'm a journalist and not a doctor like my sister. Again, I'm the black sheep of the family, but I won't go down that road right now. Uh, Kevin, what do you find out about investigative genetic genealogy and uh, kind of how it plays into this case specifically? So to your point, Barbara is one of the foremost experts in the United States. She's actually got New Zealand heritage, uh, but still American. And uh, 
in speaking with her, and just as a reminder to people watching, she helped to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018. Uh, he was ultimately charged and agreed to, I believe it was 13 murders, multiple rapes, uh, kidnappings, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, Barbara's whole perspective was that this is another tool kind of in the tool shed with regards to police, law enforcement, uh, investigation. Um, it, it incorporates using these ancestry websites that are used by the public and are very popular. We think about ancestry.com, 23andMe, places where you want to learn about your genetic roots and find long lost family members, those types of things. Well, there's two other websites, GEDmatch, G-E-D-Match, and Family Tree DNA. And those both have relationships with law enforcement. And what the state revealed through a, a document sort of in opposition to or in objection to what uh, the defense was requesting on all the DNA science and, and process was, uh, you know, we don't think we have to turn this over based on discovery rules and, and how the law works in Idaho. I would defer to uh, Tara and Jean about that. But the, the state is arguing that they don't have to turn this stuff over. Uh, it was supposed to be discussed, actually, at the hearing uh, that was held on June 27th, and then ultimately was not. The state argued, hey, we don't want to, we don't think we're required to turn this over. And they detailed a lot of the process that the FBI had actually taken the DNA from the Idaho State Crime Lab, and they utilized a private lab that ultimately is out of Texas to try and settle in on whose DNA it might be, and then went to work building a family tree. And then the state said, okay, and then the FBI kind of did their thing and then kicked over a tip about who we think you should investigate to state and local police. So the, the state argues, hey, we don't have to turn this over. And there's sort of this ongoing debate. It actually was not discussed at that June 27th hearing. Very limited items were, were discussed there. But it, the state did say, hey, uh, Judge Judge, if you do think we should have to turn this over, then we believe we should do this in camera, which is behind closed doors to suss this out and, and decide what does the defense deserve. And it gets in all these privacy debates and kind of opens Pandora's box on how these pieces of information and the building of these family trees to find suspects, whether or not that's uh, legal, legitimate. A uh, lot of questions about um, civil rights, privacy, as I said, search and seizure discussions as well. Kevin, what was the headline out of the uh, June 27th hearing? I was not here. Uh, I tried to pay some attention. It was a little difficult. But what was, you know, what was the uh, headline out of that? So I'll try to answer this quickly. There were there were three things that were supposed to happen there. There was supposed to be discussion about discovery, including the IgG information that the state doesn't want to give up and identified why. There were supposed to be uh, other specifics in discovery. The three things that, and I'm looking at some notes here, but the three things that uh, the defense said that they wanted, they wanted more information about the cell phone location data and those records. They wanted more information about the FBI forensics and how they settled on the vehicle uh, being a uh, white Hyundai Elantra. And then they also asked for three, uh, the, the training records of three Idaho state police officers who were engaged in interviews and investigation. Uh, the judge actually ordered just the other day that they do have to give up those officer training records. And the state already agreed to give those cell phone and FBI uh, data. And all of that is due to the defense by July 14th. The other last piece of that whole thing was supposed to be about uh, the defense's request for a stay of all proceedings, meaning a pause, that everything would halt uh, while they await grand jury indictment records. That discussion was also not held, and we have now seen some sealed records uh, through the court process have been kicked back and forth between the two sides, and 
incorporating the judge with some orders, but uh, that too was not seen by the public. And we're going to get to some of that uh, about kind of halting the proceedings for a while. But Gene, uh, in terms of IgG and this assertion by the state that they don't really need to turn it over, I mean, this is pretty new technology, very new. Um, how familiar are you with this? And what what about this position from the state saying, hey, we don't need to give this to you, at least not yet? Yeah, I mean, I, in my in my career, I've never used that. I've never used this before. Mm-hmm. I can understand some of the arguments that, um, you know, if there are, um, you know, other issues of privacy involving other people who have given their DNA, whether it's to the 23andMe or some of these genealogy things, that there's some, maybe some privacy issues if they are actually named as people that are out there. But, you know, I don't, I don't really know for sure. I do know that this is, you know, um, I mean, this same DNA is being used in a lot of other really big cases, you I mean, we just had that, that huge case um, of the, of the attorney uh, in Massachusetts who um, has been charged with, I think eight rapes and um, from 2006, 2007. Um, and he, uh, I think he's being charged with more this week, but again, that was all through the same thing, DNA um, 23 and me um, and the way in which they traced him because that that's all they had. Um, I mean, this, you know, DNA is being used more and more all the time. Um, I'm sure that there are some issues that are going to be new for the court to discuss of privacy issues involving people that put in their, that are concerned about their privacy. But as I recall, anybody who does 23andMe and who does some of those, they sign, they know straight up that the information that they're giving is going into a databank um, and that, that it can be used. So I don't, yeah, I don't know how strong those those privacy issues are. Um, I'm sure that it's going to be something of first impression for, for Latah County and maybe even for Judge Judge. That's his last name is Judge. Um, uh, and it may be something of first impression for them to have to wade through some of those issues. Um, but I don't see that be necessarily being a block to the admissibility of it. It will certainly go to the weight of the evidence, but not admissibility. And uh, Ski Hat Sarah, this is interesting to me, and I'll tell you why in a second. Question, why are some people thinking he, meaning Brian Koberger, didn't do it? Is there more to that? One of the uh, statements from the defense about this IgG and DNA and everything going on right now, um, they write, um, it remains unclear what the police first first relied on in focusing their investigation on Mr. Koberger. Uh, His lawyers wrote that. No matter what came first, the car, the genetic genealogy, and the the investigation has provided precious little. There is no connection between Mr. Koberger and the victim. So this has gone out to the court of public opinion. This is his defense team saying, look, there is no connection because they're talking about, you know, other male DNA being found. And they're purposely, Tara, correct me if I'm wrong, making this really nebulous and that has a trickle down effect to people like Ski Hat Sarah over here, who then asks, "Why are some people thinking he didn't do it? Um, do you think that part of the reason some people think he didn't do it now is because the defense is intentionally mudding the waters here? Are they being effective?" I mean, you know, to say that there's no connection at all between <laughs> him and this crime is, you know, disingenuous. I think when you've got that DNA evidence on the knife sheath now. The, the question, you know, that I think all jurors always want to know in every case is what's the motive, 
you know, why, why did this occur? Why these people, why these victims? And, and it's a legitimate question. It's not an element of any of, you know, what the prosecution has to show in this case, but it is a question that jurors like to know the answer to. So, you know, there's that out there and it could be that, you know, we haven't answered the question of why and this defense statement of there's no connection. Well, if what they mean by connection is, you know, he wasn't uh, ex-boyfriend, he wasn't the stalker, he wasn't the whatever. Yeah, okay, sure. There's no connection there. That doesn't mean he didn't do it. Joel, there's another tiny piece there. Uh, in their, in the defense's writing, they're noting that there was no DNA found uh, related to the victims or the victims found in, in the car. Uh, they didn't find it in his apartments, in the office, or they also checked a storage unit that didn't end up having anything. So that's part of their point, that there's no connection there. There's also been uncorroborated reports in the media, a couple uh, specific outlets I won't name, but they have reported that uh, he either had, Brian Koberger had either gone to a Greek restaurant where two of the women had worked, or that uh, he was following them on Instagram or on social media. And to this point, none of that has been corroborated or, or addressed officially. And Go ahead, I Jean. would also say, you know, those are all defense arguments, right? That there's no blood in his car. There's no blood in his office. There's no blood in the storage unit. Um, quite frankly, if it was some anybody who did this, did an amazing job anyway in getting out of that house without more trace evidence being around, whether it's Coburg or somebody else. I mean, but again, those are issues that they want the state, they want to beat the state to ask the, to try and answer questions that it doesn't matter. I mean, we know he, there's no reason to believe that the girls were going to be in his office. There's no reason to think they were in his apartment. And, you know, if they're just looking for trace evidence, you know, it cleaned up. Um, whoever did it cleaned up really, really well because he wasn't dripping their blood all the way through the house and down the stairs and out the hop and out the door. Um, I mean, whoever did this did a really, really amazing job. And there isn't any other, you know, I mean, the, the evidence that they have with Cobra or with his DNA is really significant. So again, it's a baiting question that the prosecutor can't answer, but that's their job is to try and, and muddy the waters and make it look like they've really missed something. Yeah, and Jean, I want to get back to this uh, now. Um, so the state came out and said, look, this was a statistical match to DNA from a cheek swab after Koberger's arrest. Uh, and right. just to catch everyone up, DNA evidence was found on that K-bar knife sheath that we've all seen and heard about that came from a single source that was male. Um, after um, assuming the investigation from Idaho State Police, the FBI submitted that possible suspect DNA to publicly available genetic genealogy services uh, like the Ancestry.com, although they don't participate. Uh, Kevin would have the names. I don't have them in front of me. Uh, and then the FBI used these common genealogical techniques to develop this family tree. And that led to Koberger. And this is the statistic. The DNA was 5.37 octillion times more likely to be Brian Koberger's and a random person from the general population, according to the documents, 5.37 octillion times. It's like 12 zeros. Uh, so that brings brings us to this question, Gene. Is the knife sheath with the DNA going to be the smoking gun in this trial or does the uh, does the state need more to convict and 
and to persuade the jury here. Well, I do think that the that the knife sheet is is their their biggest piece of evidence. Remember that that statistical number is more than any population that's ever walked the planet Earth ever. Um, so I mean that's huge, right? Um, and it, but but it is. I mean they also have you know this the cell phones that are pinging all around. It's it's Koberger's cell phones that is pinging around um, the victim's home. Um, showing up the next day, um, you know. I mean, there are a few of those, you know, other little pieces and parts uh, to this case as well. The picture of the that they that they were able to find of the white car, you know, at four in the morning or whatever it was, driving back to towards Pullman. I mean, they they have other pieces and parts of evidence that's really strong. So I think that um, I mean, I still think that this that the state has a has a very strong case, um, but you know, they're they're going to have to work at it, obviously, getting this information across on DNA. The other thing I would just, I mentioned is, you know, so they get the, they get the, the DNA off the, the sheath. They submit it. Um, they get the a statistical, you know, genealogy chart map to a family. They go to Pennsylvania. Eventually, now they actually have Cobras. They know who he is. They actually have his DNA, and that DNA. Now that they know who he is, they match that with the sheath, and that's what they're talking about. This is his, um, and he doesn't going to. Ha he doesn't have much of an explanation for why his DNA is on that sheath um, under the girls in that bed. I mean, what, what what's he going to say? And he doesn't have to say anything at all. But what is the defense going to say about that? Tara, I'm just thinking about out loud right now. Do you see? Is there any scenario scenario in your head where? At some point, the defense maybe has to give in, but then they go to this other male DNA and maybe they say, you know, Koberger wasn't the only one involved, maybe. Uh, and maybe he, you know, didn't actually commit the crime. He was just there. But the, these other guys did it or something along those lines. Will the defense use that other male DNA to continue to confuse, conflate and, uh, you know, just create what they're supposed to do, which is reasonable doubt. Do you see that happening? I mean, I, I certainly see a scenario where they, they, you know, they start pointing fingers and saying, there's others, there's these other people. You didn't, you know, law enforcement, you didn't do your job. You didn't track them down. You just, you know, put me in your sights and went after me. Um, I can't, you know, I, I can't see a scenario where he says, um, you know, I was just there and I witnessed, you know, somebody else committing these murders. If that was the case, I think that would have come out right away uh, and he would have turned state's evidence. But, you know, I think that the prosecutor, excuse me, the defense is going to continue um, to go down what I think are kind of irrelevant rabbit holes here and, and create reasonable doubt. But I agree with Gene. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You know, maybe it opens a different line of inquiry, but unless they can explain what his DNA was doing on the knife sheath, you know, that's under this victim's body. That's the big piece of evidence here. And, and the fact that, you know, um, and Kevin up breaks up a good point of, you know, there's no, nothing in his car, nothing in his apartment, but again, look at the timeline of events. You know, it wasn't like law enforcement arrested him the day after this all occurred. He had all this time. He was across, you know, the States on the other side um, from Idaho and, you know, from Washington where he was residing before they kind of tracked him down and found him. So he had plenty of time uh, to 
clean the car, you know, clean the apartment before he left, who knows, you know, him or somebody else. But, but I think, you know, the prosecution's strongest position here is to point all of those things out if the defense continues to move forward down this kind of line of reasoning. Joel, real, real quick, uh, and Gene sort of made this point, but I just wanted to emphasize it based on what Barbara Ray Venter told me, as far as the certainty that the DNA on that sheath matches Brian Koberger based on the cheek swab. The way she explained it to me, and again, Gene sort of addressed it, there's the number of people with regard to um, how how many people have existed in, in our you know, humankind, it's, she, she noted to me, look, there's 8 billion people on the planet. Okay. The octillion is actually, uh, it's 24 zeros. It's billion, billion, billion. And then you multiply that by 5.37. She said it's, it, you know, the, it, it is so certain in her mind that this is his DNA. It's without question. The number of people who have who have walked this planet do not exist with the same DNA as Brian Coburger. And that's a great point. And I love the way Jean said that because she was talking like a prosecutor in the courtroom. Because the minute she said that, that there aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough people on this planet that have, have walked the earth with that number right away, you say to yourself, okay, it's got to be Coburger, right? But that's, that's Jean's expertise uh, as being, you know, being in the courtroom for all those years. A quick shout out to Papa Bear, who is joining us from Moscow, Idaho, uh, of course, a place we're discussing right now, near and dear to our hearts. Uh, Tali, to you, Gene, uh, it was said there is no explanation for no DNA in the car, apartment, or on victims. Is it possible there's more maybe under fingernails and it was not disclosed yet? And how bad is this for the state? A little while ago, you said, look, he cleaned up pretty well. Um how do you react to this comment? Yeah, I. Yeah, I mean, he, he cleaned up pretty well. I mean, I don't these these presumably uh, they were, you know, they were attacked um, in their bed, uh, maybe asleep, probably asleep. Um, whether there was evidence of a struggle, um, at, you know, whether they had any opportunity for a struggle. I mean, I just I haven't heard that that is is something that's out there. Um, and I, you know, I think if the state has more DNA to come, you know, we'll, we'll hear about it. I, I just, I feel like I just sort of be guessing um, that there would, you know, that you, you know, you, you think about evidence under fingernails and that's something that's, that you see on TV a lot. Um, but I don't, um, I just feel like I'd be guessing about where it is or where it isn't. And that's just, we really, again, that's one of those things that is, drives the prosecution to go left instead of just staying in its lane with what it knows and what it can answer that, that they need to answer in order to prove this case. Uh, shout out to Jersey, Jen Castaldi. I hope to be able to stay. My mom is so bad. I almost ended up in the hospital myself. Sorry to hear you're going through that. Uh, Jen, uh, let us know if we can help surviving the survivor at gmail.com. And we've got, uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia in the house. Shout out to Karen as well. So another big uh, facet to this case and something that Kevin also just wrote a story on in terms of the cost, uh, which is an interesting angle, is, uh, of course, the death penalty. Um, prosecutors filed documents informing the court of their, of their intent to seek capital punishment for the alleged murders of the University of Idaho students. Uh, Tara Malik, um, any surprise at all here uh, on your end? 
No, not at all. What would have surprised me was if they hadn't sought the death penalty. I mean, I think, you know, it's a it's a particularly heinous crime. I think it fits the requirements for a death penalty, a capital case perfectly in this situation. Um, you know, if sometimes there are scenarios where the prosecution and the defense will strike out some sort of plea agreement or plea bargain and deal where they take the death penalty off the table in exchange for a guilty plea. Um, Obviously that hasn't occurred here. And I think it's absolutely appropriate uh, for the state to pursue death penalty in this case. Can I I ask you, Tara, actually an attorney friend of mine actually reviewed that document, the intent to seek the death penalty and actually noted to me that it was written in sort of a unique way about the mitigating factors and how the state had yet to uh, hear anything or find anything themselves and the defense had not actually provided anything yet. And it was suggested to me that the unique nature of that might suggest that they are actually intending to negotiate or at least offer uh, a deal uh, and are signaling to that by the the document. Do you have any uh, insight on that? You know, um, Everyone does it a little bit differently, uh, especially at the state level. So I I would be speculating, but it wouldn't surprise me if negotiations are ongoing. I mean, that's the big ticket item in this case is is the death penalty. And um, we're still in the midst of discovery. It sounds like, you know, defense is thinking that there's some stuff that they still need and they still have. A, A good defense attorney is not going to, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know about give up is probably not the right word, but they're not going to accept some sort of deal like that without having every single piece of information ahead of time, just because of the post-conviction issues in these types of cases. So um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. I, I, I don't know that I would say that it was odd enough, the language was odd enough to make me think that there's something like that going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a question for Kev from Fofa Cat. Uh, your story, she even knows the date on March 15th. Quoting you too here, Fix. Police said they cleared the DoorDash driver of any involvement in the crime. There are a lot of rumors about the DoorDash driver lately. Can you confirm uh, not BK and that he's not involved? Uh, what is your reporting showing you regarding this? Yeah, so this is actually a question I've received a couple of times. Um, I'm actually in the process of reviewing some of that information and kind of getting back to uh, where I received that information. So I actually can't address that right now, or at least not confirm definitively. My understanding is the DoorDash DoorDash driver was cleared or never considered uh, a suspect. I can say that much right now. Thank you, Kev. Uh, Loretta Lee, um, Gene, to you, can the university be ordered by the court to leave the house intact? Is that a viable option? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a crime scene. And um, the court could absolutely uh, do that. Um, But the court's not going to act on its own. Um, You know, this is something that the state would have to file a motion on or, you know, the defense files a motion. But the state, the court is not going to, it's very, very unlikely that the court would ever act on something like that on their own and and take up what is really one of the party's positions on that. So someone's going to have to seek that. But the court could clearly order it if the state were really opposed to that happening. Uh, Chloe's mom weighing in with the uh, antithetical, uh, uh, you know, the, the antithesis to the consensus here. I think they should tear it down. They have every right to do so. And I think the prosecutor agrees with tearing it down. The kids see it every day and how can they move on? I mean, there is that 
argument on behalf of the students, but uh, it is a criminal, an ongoing criminal investigation. So you've got to weigh that as well. Uh, Gene, back to you, because I saw this question posed. Um, in light of the death penalty being sought, does that make it harder in any way for prosecutors to get a conviction? Um, yeah, I, sometimes, um, you know, the, it, there's a bigger burden with a death penalty case because they have to find a jury, a juror in, in the juries that, um, one of the questions that they get to ask is, you know, are you, um, against the death penalty, um, or are you in favor of the death penalty? And they get to ask that question, um, of jurors and have a right to find a jury, a juror that, uh, will sit and consider the death penalty because in Idaho, ultimately, um, if Koberger is found guilty, then it will proceed to a stage two, which is in front of the same jury. But that jury actually will decide the issue of death or not. Um, and so it can make it harder, certainly to um, a get a jury. Um, and you know, there's there's definitely different evidence that they have to produce when it comes to that stage of the evidence itself. But Gene, it's going to be the same jurors, right? Just basically two cases. Okay. Um, yeah. Which is what I was just getting uh, to in a moment. But before that, Janice Peace here for you, Tara. Uh, I would want to be in the bedroom the survivor was in and look out where she saw the guy who did the deed. Um, will this be, and it already is, I guess, an argument from the state. But I mean, this is the point that people are making that they, they want to be able to potentially go in there and, you know, sort of see it with their own eyes, right? And see the dimensions of the home. And like, I know for one, I'm very visual, I'm very tactile. Like I, I would have a hard time just being told as opposed to going there and seeing it. Um, is that your take? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that's our natural inclination. We want to go, we want to see it ourselves. You know, it's, it, it's a part of the process. I think it's a natural curiosity, especially if you're put in the position of making the decision on, you know, whether this person did or didn't commit and uh, the crime and also the credibility of what, you know, um, some of those witnesses saw or could have seen, you know, depending on how far they were from this individual, how far the doorways are, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it could be, as we're kind of talking about it, you know, and, and maybe throwing my hat into what the prosecution may be thinking here about not opposing, um, demolishing this house. It could be that they they have more information that hasn't been revealed to us um, as part of this investigation. And they feel like they have a strong enough case where it doesn't matter whether the house is there or not. I mean, perhaps, you know, that's out there and that's their thinking. But um, still, I, I don't know if I would, I don't know that I would be so uh, brave or so bold to say, go ahead and demolish the house while the case is pending. Uh, LA, not so go ahead, Gene. I'm sorry. Right. I just I think it also begs the question a little bit about you know where this case ultimately if it goes to trial where that's going to be um, you know if the case moves to Boise um, because you know to get it out of North Idaho it's 300 miles away um, and so for the jury to actually be able to see the house you know they're gonna have to you know put them in a bus and it takes six hours to get there um, on this on these mountain roads um, it's, a, it's a five you know six hour bus ride at least so it's not like um, you know, it's going to be that readily accessible for jurors, presuming that that trial doesn't land in Latah County or Northern Idaho. And Gene, you just brought uh, a possible change of venue up. I was thinking about this. I mean, Latah County is a small county. I mean, how 
plausible is it to get a fair jury pool in Latah County right now? I mean, can you can you do it? I don't think so. I think I think this case will move um, out of Latah County. I mean, I, I'm I'm nearly confident, nearly all the way confident that this case is going to get moved out of Latah County. And so. you think it'll go to Ada? Do you think it will? The only reason I'm saying Ada, um, in part because we just handled the Valo case, the Valo case, and the courthouse did a really um, a great job with accommodating what that looked like on the national scene versus disruption of of our own daily business, and they were able to do it really do it pretty seamlessly. Um, and we have the you know we have the largest capacity to do that. So it, I mean, it could go to a, another courtroom, but given the the nature of this case, the national attention it's received, the press that's going to be there, all of those things. I would be surprised if it went somewhere else, but it, I mean, it, it could. Um, it definitely it could, but I don't ever see this staying in Latah County. And how well, soon? Uh, where in the, and I'll let you in one second. But how soon would that be uh, determined? Uh, the judge makes that decision. Is that right? Yeah one one of the parties is going to have to make a motion for a change of venue. Okay. And now, if it did move, is Judge Judge, would he still preside, even though it's in a different county? Yep. He yeah. still presides, and and um, the jurors, uh, it's just the jurors are picked from somewhere else, but everybody else kind of moves with the case. Okay. Kev? Well, and yet what's so interesting, Gene just said that they couldn't likely get an impartial jury out of Latah County, and that's exactly what they sat for the grand jury was a specific grand jury from Latah County specific for this case. And so remember, that's probable cause. Sure. And that's not reasonable doubt. Right. But in part, that's also why the defense is seeking some of these grand jury indictment records and wants such specificity because they're, according to Ann Taylor, they're preserving Brian Koberger's right to challenge that indictment. Right. Which I, and I agree with, they're, you know, being able to look at the, at the grand jury and get the grand jury transcript. They're going to want to know, you know, what questions were asked of the grand jurors. And, um, you know, I don't think that Latah County has a standing grand jury. They, they might, but I don't think that they do. And so a grand jury would have been called in, um, in order to, to hear this case. Um, and I think that this defense has every right to be able to look at the grand jury, um, proceedings from that point of view. I think that's absolutely important and the defendant's right. And I, I agree with that, but I don't, I, you know, all things being equal, if you will, the issue of probable cause is very different than the issue of, of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I, I don't know that they needed to go to a different County just to get the case off the ground, mm. but you know, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see about that. I do think it's interesting that the defendant gets to wear civilian clothes to all these hearings. I've never, ever seen that before. Um, and, and while that may seem a little petty, it really bothers me. <laughs> I mean, every other case tell I've had. Why. Defendants... Tell us why. I mean, tell us well, why. Because he's, he's in jail and um, he's getting something that most prisoners don't get. I mean, he's getting to put on a suit and come to court. And, and that's something that they generally have to ask for at jury trials, but not for these daily hearings that they're having where he's putting on a suit. Um, it's just it's just not the way business is done. Um, and he's not showing up in his orange jail suit. And I just I think it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, Gene, think of, think of Lori Vallow. Every time she showed up, 
besides yeah. jury. She was wearing her, you know, she's wearing her jail clothes. Um, and, and Jean, what could you do as a prosecutor there to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, they must have, they must be agreeing to this. Um, otherwise, I mean, they, there would be a motion from the court. They, they must have had some decision about this amongst themselves that they didn't file it formally and they just said, fine. I would, if it were me yeah. as a prosecutor, I would never allow that to happen. Not one minute, not one day would I allow a defendant to come to court in civvy clothes, um, except for his jury trial. I mean, I wouldn't do it. There you go. That's why she's one of the best right there. Uh, LA Not So Confidential, shout out. If you guys have not seen the podcast, check it out. Dr. Shiloh, she's got a lot of insight into uh, the minds of uh, some not such good people like uh, potentially Brian Koberger here, who is accused of this hideous crime. Um, Kevin, real quick, back to you here from Facey Cad. Uh, why does the state want to destroy the house? Uh, have, they, have um, I don't think the state wants to destroy it, but university wants to destroy it have they given a reason um I, I know people have said it's because of the students and it's you know a horrible reminder of what happened but has there been a formal statement or a reason for the demolition of the home yeah so to clarify uh according to the university of idaho at least through uh an email from shannon gray between him and and counsel there um the prosecution and the defense have no objection to this. Again, that's according to the university. Uh, there's a gag order in place. And so uh, barring an objection or court filing that would oppose it, that appears to be true. Um, as far as official statements uh, to the public, university president Scott Green did say that they do feel that it would be a healing step. And uh, they also are looking to get away from the sensationalism uh, with people just coming to town and dropping by and taking a visit to the home. And so they feel like that's really important, uh, almost as a transition point for the university and the students who continue to attend the university to, in some ways, move on. And uh, this is a pretty uh, dark, macabre question here from Dom's mom. Uh, Kevin, right back to you. Have the victims been laid to rest? Are they being kept for evidential reasons, like in Tylee and JJ's case, uh, those two young victims still have not been returned uh, by the, you know, by the state, the court to the family for a proper burial. Do we know what's happening here? I can't speak with complete confidence. My understanding was that um, Madison and Kaylee had been cremated and that actually the Gonsalves family had uh, possessed both of those uh, urns. Um, I sort of speaking out of turn a little bit, but I believe that that had been reported and that the Gonsalves family had confirmed. I could not speak to the others uh, with any level of specificity, but I do believe that at least the the families have, uh, or the bodies have been released and, you know, whatever the family's wishes have been followed through on. And uh, here someone's asking about the date. The date for the trial right now is October 2nd of uh, 2023. Tara, can you just talk briefly about, because uh, we've been talking about the death penalty, but just the difference in magnitude between a quote unquote regular trial and a death penalty trial. Uh, I mean, how is it fundamentally different in terms of the magnitude uh, and the consequences and et cetera, et cetera? Well, I mean, the pressure is certainly on. It's a lot higher when you've got a death penalty case. Um, appeals are much more common in death penalty. I mean, they're common in every uh, case that 
that goes to trial in, in the criminal realm, but certainly much more so in a death penalty case. Post-conviction issues uh, are also another area that's pretty significant, and, and we would expect if there's some sort of conviction here. So, you know, everything that you do in a death penalty case is under, I think, a even more, um, uh, a larger microscope. Uh, the state has to be extremely careful with what they say. They have to be extremely careful with their arguments. Uh, you know, so I think everyone has to toe the line a little bit more, just understanding the magnitude and the the potential consequences here um, for a misstep or for violating the rules or, you know, not respecting um, the the defendant's rights, constitutional rights. So it, it's a lot more work. Um, you know, the uh, volume, especially in this case, the volume of discovery that's going to be exchanged and has been exchanged between the parties, especially that uh, GPS technology, the cell phone pings, I mean, all of that is just greater and bigger. Um, it takes a lot more preparation uh, to go through. And anytime you've got DNA in a case, you know, you can expect to spend uh, hours and hours and hours with your experts, making sure that you've got uh, a, a very solid understanding as the attorney introducing that type of evidence into court about uh, making sure you cover all the foundational bases so your evidence gets in uh, and is accepted by the court. So it, it just really um, raises the bar as far as being careful and making sure that you are crossing all your T's, dotting all of your I's here. And then when it goes into the part two, which is the death penalty phase, when you're talking about uh, whether or not there should be the death penalty in this case, that's a whole different level of preparation that has to occur as well. And uh, this comment here just goes to show you, not everyone thinks maybe the way you think, uh, and I don't mean uh, Tara, I mean the public, uh, everything from Facey Cad, she says, everything tells me Koberger is innocent. There is zero evidence except touch DNA. So fishy. This is exactly what the defense is hoping more, more people would say. Let's take a moment out of the show to embarrass the crap out of fix here. Uh, Jersey Jen Castaldi. On a lighter note, so I can so I can stop crying. Who is the hot guy guest? That is Kevin Fixler, investigative reporter for the Idaho Statesman. And as far as I know, he is unmarried. Not married, this guy. Kev, you did a uh, a piece, now that I've embarrassed you, on um, the cost of the death penalty, uh, uh, death penalty case. Uh, what is the cost of a death penalty case? You know, in Idaho, we don't actually know the answer to that question. Um, in 2014, the legislature tried to study the issue, but lacking enough uh, data from the various uh, government entities involved, uh, they did not come to a complete uh, analysis and answer on that. However, the, the story I wrote, which just published on Sunday, uses two studies, uh, one out of um, Washington state and one out of Oregon, felt it was relevant to use neighboring states, um, to point to the pursuit of a death penalty in a aggravated first degree murder case usually ends up being about a million dollars more than a life sentence. And that includes all the incarceration, court fees, uh, attorneys involved, experts, all the costs. And so what they found in Washington in the study was that those cases averaged to about $3.1 million. And this is slightly dated data from 2015 and from 17 years of data, but $3.1 million for the pursuit of a death penalty case versus about $2 million when it wasn't. And in Oregon, it was about $2.6 million they found versus $1.7. 
But, you know, Idaho does not have a, a let's call it a success rate in completing the death penalty. They've this, the state has the last time they executed somebody was 2012 and they've executed two death row inmates in about the last 30 years. Um, so there's some hangups here and it extends uh, the time that people spend in prison. And it's obviously, as Taro was mentioning, because of extensive appeals. Um, but it sort of begs the question, including with uh, our Republican dominated legislature and executive offices, whether or not uh, there's a value to taxpayers. But um, our attorney general, who's a former U.S. congressman, made a, a strong argument that it brings closure to families. And for the governor's office, it had a lot to do with this being kind of the the only way to bring evildoers to justice was, I believe, uh, the perspective of, of the spokesperson for his office. And I'm going to get back to Gina in a sec because there's a bunch of stuff with the indictment. But uh, Sally M. for you, Tara. Uh, there are a lot of conspiracies surrounding this case, including theories involving drugs and the cartel. Uh, you heard about the DoorDash guy. How does this type of YouTube sleuthing hurt the investigation and upcoming trial? I know there's a big YouTube video out today. I'm not going to mention the name that brings in another possible potential suspect into the case. But what does this do overall, um, Tara, and, and how difficult is it for attorneys on both sides when you've got the internet cranking simultaneous uh, to the work that you're trying to do? It's really difficult. And, you know, nowadays it's, uh, it's certainly changed in the last, you know, 10, 15 years on, on your prospective juror pool. And so, yeah, it can have an effect. I mean, I think it makes um, it all the more important to when you're going through the jury selection process um, to ask the right questions here, it can confuse people, um, you know, and we call jury selection, uh, most attorneys do the, the deselection process, because what you're trying to do is deselect the people who have heard about the case are coming in with preconceived notions uh, and, and who might have some sort of bias or leaning before because of what they're hearing out in there. So um, and it makes it even harder for attorneys during the case as well, because they've got to somehow ensure and have some uh, in conjunction with the court and with the opposing counsel, you know, have some parameters and figure out a way to keep these um, jurors from seeing this stuff that's out there. And I don't know that there's a hundred percent foolproof way to do that, but it certainly um, makes the job a lot trickier. I was thinking the same thing as Tolly here. I was surprised they didn't find 50 more uh male dna it was a party house the day before lots of people were there it is kind of surprising that it was as few as three uh felicia makes a good point too we won't know pretty much anything and until it comes to the trial we're all speculating until we know the real evidence uh that is uh, when it all comes out so we're gonna have to wait till october 2nd uh if that is the uh, in fact the date uh for the beginning of the trial uh gene back to you here uh, on the indictment so uh, a transcript and record of grand jury proceedings that led up to the indictment of Brian Koberger. Of course, that was that secret grand jury indictment. As Kevin talked about earlier, there was going to be another preliminary hearing. Uh, but this grand jury indictment popped up on everybody um, where he was, in fact, indicted. But it, they say uh, it will now be released. The proceedings will be released to the defense and prosecution, as well as investigators and experts involved in the case. Um, is this normal, not normal, par for the course? What does this mean for both sides? 
Um, it's a little abnormal in that, well, what's normal is the grand jury transcripts get ordered and, and, and the defense and the prosecutor get the transcripts so they can see exactly what's been asked and answered of all the witnesses. And you can, you know, test the defense can see what was questioned, those sorts of things. Deliberations of the jury is never, ever recorded. And that's never, they wouldn't ever get that. This is abnormal in that it looks like that's the case, that the judge is going to allow, um, if, if they, when picking the grand jury, all of that should have been recorded. Uh, and so when they call in the jury uh, to pick them, all of that would have been taken down and transcribed so that um, everyone can see what questions were asked of the witnesses themselves to test their ability to be fair and impartial and to listen to the evidence. Um, you know, we, you know, Kevin had mentioned that the defense, you know, was concerned about that we even got a grand jury in Laytock County to listen to that. But, you know, that if, we're not asking people to live in a hole. I mean, we don't ask people to not know anything. And when the Vallow case was here, people knew stuff about the Vallow case, or they might have heard something about the Vallow case. But what they really want to know is, can you set that aside and just listen to the evidence um, and to make the decisions based on the 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 court's um, orders um, and the law. And um, can you set aside anything else that you may have known? I mean, we don't have a, we don't require that people lived under a rock and that they don't know anything, um, but we have to be able to make sure that they can at least, that they promise that they will listen to the evidence and that they will be fair and impartial and follow the law. So if that's what the court is, is going to provide as our, how the grand jurors were selected, the questions that were asked of them, um, you know, the procedural, that sort of thing, you know, great. Um, I don't think that the state should have anything to hide um, and that all of that should be, you know, if that's something that is a real issue that should be provided. Grand jurors do have the right to anonymity. Um, and so I don't know what the court has done with that, um, but typically they would never release a juror's names and they just release their numbers, um, but not their names. So, um, you know, I think that that's, uh, you know, something for them to investigate, but you know, they, that can, that can be done. Uh, D smalls, good, good reporters ask themselves, try to anticipate the question. So Kevin, I'm wondering if you have asked yourself this, where's the DNA from the victim's bodies? There was a struggle. So there should be something on them. Have you tried to look into this further, try to get answers. I imagine with a gag order and everything else, it's virtually impossible to find out, but is it something that you have at least thought about if not explored? Well, sure. I mean, something that I think about frequently and it's been brought up about, you know, maybe DNA underneath the fingernails of the victims. There had been, uh, the coroner had said that uh, Zana in particular had defensive wounds in trying to fend off uh, the attacker. And so perhaps under her fingernails, I'll point out, I mean, what we know thus far, somebody made this point in a question. What we know is what's in the probable cause affidavit and what has come out in court records to this point. You know, we can trust that with some level of verifiability. And at least the defense is trying to poke holes in those things. But with regards to where is the DNA, I mean, Tara made a good point. Brian Koberger was not picked up. If he is indeed the killer here, he had opportunities to clean his home and had a background in criminology and understanding uh, you know, how to clean either the vehicle, which there are some reports that they witnessed him doing that in Pennsylvania. Again, uncorroborated, unsubstantiated, but out there. 
And also they checked every nook and cranny of that apartment to test everything for blood. They came away with two presumptive items, a piece of his bedding and also a uh, part of a pillowcase. So there was blood in that home presumptively. We just don't know where that went. Beyond what's in the probable cause affidavit, we just simply do not know. And, you know, it's not it's not the state's job, nor should it be that they are telling everybody what they have. I mean, you know, they discovery gets done. If there is more DNA out there, they will pass it along to the defense. Um, and presumably there's going to be a few surprises at the trial that the state may have other evidence. But it's not up to the state every time something new comes in to say, oh, we have some more evidence. They're not going to try this case in front of the public. Um, and I presume that they may, you know, they, there very well may be more evidence that we don't know about. Uh, and we're not entitled to know about, but I think that that's the kind of thing that conspiracy theorists love um, and gives them opportunities to just pontificate about things. But that um, in the end, the jury that gets selected, they will be in a box and they will be given the evidence that's admissible and they're not really going to be able to, you know, they, they, they can't, they, they weren't, they're not going to be able to go into other things that, you know, they, that aren't there. Um, so I think you would ask the question to Tara about, you know, how does, how does this end up playing out with a jury? And in the end, you know, they're going to just, they'll have the evidence that's presented to them um, and the rules of law uh, to apply. Um, and that's what they have. But I think this kind of case breeds a lot of conspiracy theories. A couple of that the jurors are never going to hear. Yeah. Couple of interesting comments here. Dark Violet 69. I think it's important for the prosecution to show that there does not have to be a former connection between the victims and Koberger, that stalkers slash killers don't have to know the victims. Looks like right. uh Jean is shaking her head in agreement, followed by this comment here from Lotus. If I was a juror, I'd want a good explanation on how this crime could have been accomplished accomplished so quickly with supposedly no victims' blood trail outside of the house in the sus suspect's car, house, etc. I guess these are the things that we will eventually find out. Shout out to Baby Doll. I haven't seen you in a little bit, Baby Doll. Um, to you, uh, Tara Malik. Um, so Koberger's defense team also plans to challenge the indictment. They've been trying to obtain all the information on the grand jury proceedings. The state has argued that at least some of the material should remain sealed. Um, what is going on here in terms of challenging the indictment? Um, is that something that is remotely uh, common uh, in criminal defense? Um, and were you surprised to find out about this? Um, it happens. So, yes, you can challenge the indictment and there are certain grounds to challenge it on. I think, um, you know, likely here what we're hearing so far from the defense tends to indicate that they're going to challenge it on maybe, um, you know, the the selection of the jurors. And so it's a point that I think both uh, Kevin and Jean talked about earlier. And I, I think that is going to be a really big piece of this. Was there and did the prosecution do its job when it chose uh, these individuals to sit on the grand jury? Were they properly vetted and were they unbiased enough to sit and listen to that evidence and then come out with um, a probable cause finding? So uh, I'm not surprised that they're going down this road. I think the, the defense is going to go down every road they can to try and get this thrown out. Um, you know, other things that are 
really common in cases is you'll see a you know, Fourth Amendment challenge, search and seizure. There is some uh, uh, misstep that law enforcement uh, engaged in or the state engaged in the prosecution, you know, when they were putting together a warrant for certain information or data. I could also see that coming out. Uh, Sandy Saylor, were there other uh, unidentified male DNA found? Was it found near one of the bodies? If so, isn't that important to investigate? Uh, followed by this question, Gene, would the public know at this point if there was more DNA found? Uh, what's the answer? The chances are the public would not know if there's more DNA found because the state, you know, is not going to try this case um, in the public. And it's in the process of developing all of its evidence and its information. And um, and so, no, the public would not know if there's more DNA. I don't know if there's more DNA. Um, and I don't know what else the state has in its case. Um, so, I, you know, clearly they have enough to go forward. Um, and, you know, what we know is what is in the in the court records that they're fighting about. But, um, you know, in my own experience, you know, what I had in probable cause affidavit was just a piece of the rest of the entire case. Um, you know, there's something about holding your cards a little close to the vest too. You know, I mean, how you're going to play it and what, how you're going to do this is important for the state. Um, and they're under absolutely no duty, nor should they be presenting this case to, to the public. Um, and Jean, back to you, just to clarify some of this in terms of uh, the grand jury indictment, uh, it says that the court is allowing defense attorneys to share portions of the grand jury records and transcripts with its investigators and retained experts will not be allowed to disclose any grand jury material to anyone else. The court is also allowing select portions of the grand jury record and transcript to be shared with any witnesses who testified in the grand jury proceedings. But for each witness, only the portion of the redacted version of the transcript that contains the witness's own testimony. What does all this mean? Like for, you, you know, if you, if, if you're the state here, do, mm -hmm. how does this help you? How does it favor you? Well, we want to make sure that, that our witnesses, uh, I mean, that we present a fair trial. And so witnesses are able to see their own testimony but they're not allowed to read the testimony of somebody else. We don't want them reading other person's testimony and then either adapting it um, or, or correcting their own. We, we need them to, to testify about what their, what their own memory is and what they know of. So that's a real common order that witnesses only get to see the portion that they testified to and they're not allowed to read or see what anybody else talked about. Um, and you know this question about what the court is releasing um, uh, you know, that is an, they're going to release the process apparently, or the questions that were asked of the grand jury. Um, I don't know what expert witnesses are going to line up about the, about those questions, or if they think that the questions were unduly leading in some fashion or, you know, what is going to come of that. Um, but, um, I mean, those, that's a little bit unusual, but I, you know, but they, that's what they're using to attack the grand jury indictment um, is that the state did something um, that was unfair um, or prejudicial uh, to the defendant right, right out of the gates. Um, well, so, I have a question about that though. 
Yeah. So whether that's for Eugene or Utah, because you mentioned it, if let's say hypothetically the defense was successful in challenging this indictment, what would that actually mean from a process standpoint? Because it wouldn't be double jeopardy. You, would you just seat another grand jury or would it require a preliminary hearing? If it required, if, if it was just based on the grand jury and they thought that something was so flawed with the grand jury, either through the selection process of the jurors or, well, it would have to be the selection process of the jurors or the questions were so leading um, that, that it would get thrown out for being that unfair. The, the state can always go back and refile, right? Um, now, can they refile under a grand jury case? There's some rules about um, if a jury, if a grand jury no bills a case, then the state can't take it back to another grand jury. They can only go to a preliminary hearing. In this instance, if it were found that they thought the, that the question was uh, an issue of um, improper questioning or something like that, I don't know that it would stop the state from going back to another grand jury. They would just have to do their questions differently or they would have different guidance, but it wouldn't stop them from going forward and they would not have to take this to a preliminary hearing. Um, Sally has a question for Kevin. Were you aware it could be a local person or did the paper that has statesman have to wait like everybody else, Kevin? So we found out in the same way that many others did. And there was a TV station and I forget the affiliate, but it was out of Pennsylvania. That was actually, it was in Philadelphia was first to report the news that that they had gotten a suspect and arrested somebody. It wasn't until, um, you know, some of that information started to leak just before the police chief from Moscow held a press conference. We did start to discover the name and learn that it was uh, a student, a graduate student at Washington state university. Um, I am not T. Payne. Do you believe, uh, Kevin, for you again, the gag orders actually created the speculation problem that the defense team is upset about? Do you believe there should be a gag order? Does it help justice to be served? I don't know if you can answer these necessarily, but um, how difficult or challenging is it for you as a journalist with this gag order in place and basically the judge locking everything down? I've answered that question from you before, Joel. I'll address that, but I actually don't mind answering some of those questions. Um, it, it does make it more challenging. Obviously, we're not able to vet a lot of information by law enforcement. Uh, we can't speak to the attorneys on either side or for the witnesses to understand legal strategy or anything outside of the court order. Um, I've lost the questions now. If you pull that oh. back up, Joel. But, <laughs> well, answer um, this one about uh, cameras. I'm going to look for the other one. Uh, what okay. was the final decision on cameras? Uh, so it's the judge for now is allowing them to proceed. And the rule is that it's a pool camera, meaning it's uh, it, it, it's on tape delay. So it it's allowed to film for now. And he's uh, reserved the right to change his opinion, depending on how things shake out. But uh, yes, the defense has argued. And by the way, the, the state, the prosecution agrees that the gag order should be in place. Um, and that is the current sta- status. I'll note that my newspaper is one of a consortium of news outlets that is suing over the gag order. Uh, the judge did agree that it was overly broad and sort of narrowed it a little bit, uh, but it does still pertain to the same people. He's just been a little more specific about what questions they can and cannot answer uh, outside of the court order. Um, it, it's challenging. It is. I don't know that it's been to the extent that the defense claims that their defendant has been 
uh, tried in the court of public opinion or uh, been crucified and all these things. But, you know, their job is to protect their client and, and they're doing everything they can to, to give him a fair shake. And uh, the chief technical officer took the question down that I put back up to put Kerry's question up, which is good because I was just going to get to this and then we'll wrap up after this. But Kerry is asking, uh, can Koberger's former crimes be addressed? Um, Gene Fisher, to you first, and then Tara, I'm going to get to you with a specific bit of information. But what about the fact that now we are finding out that he has been accused and arrested for some other crimes, or at least in the one other crime? I don't remember what that crime is. So in 2014, um, there was an arrest for stealing his uh, sister's cell phone. I believe that's what it was, Kevin. Correct me there. Yeah, this comes from an ABC report. I still don't really know where they got the record. They've acknowledged it's not a public record, but they do seem to have a source that, yes, he had stolen his sister's cell phone and then went to, I believe, the local mall and turned it into a automated machine for $200. Yeah, and we don't know which sister. I'm looking at this ABC report right now. Koberger's dad, Michael Koberger, told police his son stole his daughter's iPhone uh, he had a heroin addiction, apparently, at this point. Uh, this is when he was arrested. Um, people say, look, this was 2014. He had a, a major drug problem then. Uh, but can this be brought into evidence, potentially, or is there no chance, Gene? Uh, I think he was under 18. Yes. Um, if I'm doing my math right. Yeah, I think I he mean, was 19. Oh, he was 19? If he was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, if he was over 18... Um, if he got convicted, um, because that's a crime of the crime of theft is one of the specific crimes that the state can use in order to um, that the state can bring up um, against the defendant because it goes to veracity and truth telling. And, and the crime of stealing is specifically one of those crimes that can be used um, against the defendant. But uh but the fact that it, there's just a police report, if it never resulted in anything um, and there's no conviction, um, no, I don't see that ever coming up, nor do I ever see them coming up or telling the jury that he had a heroin issue, for instance, or any of those issues that don't have any bearing on what was happening anywhere around the time that this crime was going on. So I don't, I don't see that happening. This is an interesting final question here, and then we'll start to wrap from Tali. Uh, Gene, do you think they examined the dog on on the scene? Is it usual to test animals that are found in crime scenes? I think he, the dog, is the key. Tali fixated on that dog. Um, what say you? Would they have examined forensically this dog? I'm sure. Well, I would like to think that that if they thought there was any blood on that dog, um, that they would have tested the dog um, for you know, the presence of any DNA. Um, but the dog's not talking and uh, the dog's not going to testify. And uh, so we're not going to hear from the dog. But, um, you know, if there was, if they thought there was some DNA there to be found, I would think that that is something that they would have looked for. But, um, but I, you know, dog, dog's not talking. It's weird. That reminds me of the OJ Simpson case that OJ had an Akita I believe uh, that was roaming that property when that, so if only dogs could talk, we would know a hell of a lot more. But uh, for those who don't know and are wondering who the hot guy is with the poor lighting, that is Kevin Fixler, an investigative reporter with the Idaho Statesman. 
just named Reporter of the Year in Idaho. Believe it or not, he has a ring light on him, but he is looking a little dark, and I will get that corrected with the chief technical officer. Uh, he's been following this story uh, from the get-go, knows more about it than most, even traveled out to Pennsylvania. The fix, what is next for this uh, case? Um, can you give us a little smidgen of a hint uh, of what you're working on next? And if you can't do that, tell us uh, what you're, uh, wh which way this is headed, you think? I'll be super interested, as Gene spoke to, uh, whether or not there is a request for a change of venue. And perhaps one of uh, our other two guests could speak to whether or not that would delay the trial, which there's a lot of speculation about whether or not this will actually happen in October, regardless of uh, you know where it happens. So I would leave that question with those two. But I'll tell you what's been really interesting about the case over the last couple of months, in particular because of the gag order and awaiting court records so consistently. We're sort of just waiting. Everybody in media is sort of waiting for the next thing, the next thing. And so, um, you know, we're kind of taking it as it comes at this point. Hmm. Well, Kev, you earned it. So uh, enjoy your fourth and, and chill out a little bit. But uh, Jean Fisher, she's retired. So she's uh, permanently chilling mm -hmm. out on that. Uh, what looks like a back patio. I don't know, though. Uh, she recently retired after nearly 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office as a special crimes unit chief. Uh, she knows more about the Ada County Courthouse than most people, I would say. Uh, and this is an interesting question here. We did not get to this, but we will right now, Gene, and then your final thoughts. What about the cops? Um, Ann Taylor is trying to get training records. Uh, can you talk about that? And then there's another comment right after this. Um, I think Ann Taylor knows something about the three cops that she asked for their training records. I'm sure a little birdie told her something about the three of them. Um, and I don't know, is this, is this an attempt, do you think, by her to drum up some uh, dirt on these police officers to say, hey, I don't, and I'm just, I am totally speculating here that yeah. they may have done something wrong. They may have uh, collected evidence in, in the wrong way or done something wrong in their own past. Who knows? But you think she's just looking for a way to muddy the waters here? I haven't heard anything about anything specific. Um, so I don't know if this is just a fishing exercise uh, that she's trying to get at. Um, you know, we don't oftentimes see uh, requests for discovery for training records of law enforcement officers. But given the fact that this case all is really hinging a lot on some expert testimony, such as GPS monitoring, such as the DNA, those sorts of things, you know, it may be relevant to understand what an officer's um, education and, and training has been in those fields and if they if they follow proper protocols. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't see that as hugely, um, like a huge issue. I mean, you, you can't get into personnel matters. Um, you know, they're not going to be able to get into some of those sorts of things if she thinks that she knows something dirty about the police. I mean, that personnel records are, you know, rarely ever, ever going to be provided unless there's something so specific that the judge is going to look at something in camera. But I don't really know what she's looking for. I don't know if this is a big fish, fishing exercise, or really if they're just looking to see what sort of training in, that these officers had um, to make sure that the right process was followed. And uh, Gene, you said earlier on, you made the prediction that there will that there will be a change of venue uh, in this case. Uh, do you think the trial starts on October 2nd or do you think there's a continuance? 
I'll bet our other two guests lunch that there will be no trial on October 2nd. No trial. No trial. If you had a guess on a date, what would your guess be? Next spring. You heard there you go, guys. Two big pieces of information. That trial will not be in Latah County and will not happen in the fall, according to Gene Fisher, who knows her. I'm, I'm, not, take, I'm not taking that bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Kevin's gonna be calling Gene right after this. You're gonna see a new story tomorrow. Uh Tara Malik, she is an Idaho licensed attorney practicing in state and federal court in business and commercial litigation and has experience in both civil and criminal law. She also ran for uh, state Senate. She's a politician of sorts. She does it all. Uh, Tara, I had a question for you and I just lost it. So um, I guess same question to you. Do you think that there will be a change of venue since you're the other attorney? And do you agree with Gene that this is getting pushed way back to the spring? Are you, are you uh, feeling that in your bones? Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as there was the notice of intent to pursue the death penalty, this is absolutely going to be pushed out. I I cannot imagine a case like this going to trial in October. Um, You know, I I think before the issue has been, uh, Koberger has not waived his speedy trial rights yet. Uh, And so it was set within the outer bounds of that speedy trial um, clock. Now that the state has indicated their intent to pursue the death penalty, uh, if the parties can't come to some sort of agreement uh, as far as the plea deal, then I, I, I don't think we're going to see a trial in October. I would agree with Gene at the earliest, I would think, spring. And I think it's going to get more and more interesting because of comments like this. Why do people say that if, if the DNA was in his car, it was a slam dunk, but there's none and people are still saying it's him? Uh, there are people out there who are wondering uh, did he commit this crime? And uh only person who knows that right now is Brian Koberger, I think. Louise Rouleau from Canada. Hello, STS and the chat team. A quick programming note. Mentioned it earlier. Tomorrow night, the 4th of July. Happy birthday, America. We're going to Philadelphia where that de- Declaration of Independence was signed and the Liberty Bell sits. And uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, an unbelievable case there of Ellen Greenberg. She was stabbed 20 times, 10 to the front, 10 to the back. An independent autopsy showed that two of the stab wounds happened after she was no longer alive, which is kind of hard to do, especially since it was ruled as suicide. And there were also signs of abuse found on her body, bruising and some other markings. So we are going to discuss that case. I would love for STS Nation to come in strong tomorrow night. Um, and maybe we can rally together and tweet at the mayor of Philadelphia. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Philly mayor um, or mayor Philly. I think it's Philly mayor. Double check that. But uh, we'll let you know tomorrow night and uh, we'll try to help the Greenberg family. Josh and Sandy Greenberg get justice. This has been going on since 2011. Thank you guys all for tuning in. It is almost the holiday. Everyone have a safe holiday until next time. Thank you. Love you, America. Love you, Idaho. Until next time. (laughs) Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, Get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. 
Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.